Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 16. In the previous episode, we went deeply into how a molecule of sucrose and cherry pulp becomes a flavor compound like banana or peach and gets into the coffee seed. At the end of the episode, there was a question about how to communicate flavor to consumers in a way that doesn't take 25 minutes to explain. I think the question behind the question was asking how can we communicate the specialness of a coffee in a quick way to convince consumers that what they are holding is indeed a special coffee, and flavor is an accessible entry point for specialness. What we want to convey is that this coffee is no longer interchangeable with any other coffee. This coffee is different. This coffee is unique. It tastes like strawberries, Meyer lemon, and brown sugar. It was fermented for 48 hours, and it was dried in the shade for 20 days. What we want to say is that this coffee is not like the others. But what I have experienced is that then it can quickly become a new category, a category of fruity extended fermentation coffees. The uniqueness can quickly be copied, replicated, and ultimately diluted. What started as special is now another interchangeable category. I think we have an infinite capacity to level up, to normalize. Then what can happen is you find yourself standing in front of a table of 30 coffees, all fruit-forward flavors, all with extended post-harvest processing, and treat them as interchangeable too. So honestly, I don't like talking about flavor in coffee too much. I don't think coffee flavor is what's going to help the industry move forward and closer towards a long-term stability. I think it's most often a distraction of the larger picture. My concern is the coffee farmers, the people at the source of the value chain. I think focusing on flavor distracts us from the larger threats to coffee, like climate change, pests and diseases, and what I want to talk about specifically today, which is the availability of labor. The question, who is growing and picking our coffee? Because I don't see how any coffee can be special if it's also anonymous. What is the value of being able to describe in detail the chemical compounds that give coffee flavor, or to be able to rattle off the post-harvest processing or drying technique if at the end we don't know anything about the people that are growing and picking and moving this fruit? I believe that prioritizing flavor is a way to think that we are taking coffee out of the commodity category without doing the deep work of restructuring how coffee is bought and sold. How can we know so much about brewing methods and roast curves and processing techniques and yet know so little about the people who grow, cultivate, and pick our coffee? I argue that if you care about coffee quality, you must also care about the coffee farmer. And I don't mean this in a strictly altruistic capacity. There is a strong component of self-interest, too. This is not an episode about charity. I just want to share what I learned in my pursuit of quality, that we cannot ignore the pickers. This will also not be a history lesson on the role coffee played in the colonialism of Latin America. If you're interested in that, I recommend the book Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World by Mark Pendergrast. Instead, I will tell you about three interactions I had with three different size clients in three different countries that helped this picture crystallize for me. This is not how coffee was historically set up in colonial times. This is not about the last 50 or 10 years. This is my personal experience on what is happening in the world now, today. When I am hired to work at a mill, my first question is, 
what are the barriers to quality here in this location? Usually, to help me improve quality, the first things I think about are not what can they start doing, but what can they stop doing? What can we take away? I aim to strip back the process to a stronger foundation and then see what can be added. We have a rather strong link between quality and flavor. I think this is rather unfortunate because it forces us to pursue a singular path, usually a path that is additive. It makes sense that as we seek a value-add approach, we would think of what to add. This can include adding equipment, or adding tanks, adding beds, adding time in the cherry, adding time in the tank, adding time on the raised beds, adding steps. The general approach is to ask a producer to do more, more experiments, more micro lots, more offerings. A process that used to consist of picking the cherry, laying the fruit out to dehydrate in the sun, and then removing the husk has ballooned in complexity. Some of my clients have invented acrobatic marvels of protocols. They put the cherry in the bag, then on the bed, then back in the bag, then they pulp it, then they put it in a submerged tank, and then they do a dry fermentation, and then, and then, and then, and then, etc. They are doing 300% more work, extending processing time, taking up space in the mill, paying people to monitor the coffee. And usually, they can only sell their coffee for about 10% more. I don't think this would be an issue if we had an infinite and renewable source of energy. But we don't. All of this addition requires a lot of labor. It requires a lot of people to make it happen. Mechanization can definitely mitigate this, but that's another topic for another time. I want to stay focused on the people, on the muscle required to move coffee. Coffee is a labor-intensive crop. Like I mentioned in a previous episode, there are five tissue layers to remove to get to the seed and be able to roast it. This requires a lot of processing, unlike, say, cardamom or avocados. So about 200 years ago, there were a lot more people throughout the world who could do the work. And I'm not talking about the ethical component of slavery in this episode either. I'm just talking about pure availability. The rising middle class is pulling work out of the fields and into urban areas. The rising middle class is also consuming more of the products meant for export. Our coffee supply has always been precarious. At least in the Americas, it was an exploitative system set up to extract resources from one part of the world and ship them to another. The system was set up for volume, for high yields. This means workers were not valued for their knowledge of farming and cultivation practices. They were valued for their muscle. This was because we believed how a coffee was roasted was the most important factor in flavor. The quality of the raw material was less important. So as long as it wasn't obviously defective, it was good. Different varieties would get picked together, blended, mixed in. Various levels of ripeness would get blended together as well. So one advantage of the specialty coffee movement is the emphasis on the raw material. Now varieties are being separated, and there was an emphasis on picking ripe and having uniform coffee. We talk about flavor science, but the easiest way to address the issue of quality is to go upstream to the coffee farm. We can agree that ripe fruit gives the best possible opportunity for higher quality coffee. It seems like a simple solution. If you want to improve coffee quality, just pick ripe coffee. But one challenge in coffee is that the fruit on the branch doesn't ripen evenly or at the same time. To really illustrate this, I want to take a moment to show the differences for how wine grapes ripen. So the grapes are planted and trellised and managed the entire year to promote even ripening. All of the individual grapes in a cluster and all the clusters on a single vine are picked at the same time, once. 
compared to a coffee tree that can have three to five passes on that same tree. And like I mentioned in grapes, this doesn't just happen. There are a lot of steps to support this process, beginning with pruning. During pruning each year, the vine gets evaluated to keep it in balance. So this means that based on its age and the health of the vine, a worker decides how many buds to leave and how many to remove. If you leave too few buds, you will reduce the number of shoots and the number of clusters that can develop, and then you unnecessarily reduce your yields, and this is bad. But if you leave too many, the vine will be overcropped, and the plant may not be strong enough to evenly ripen each of the clusters, and you will have a high yield, but you will have low quality fruit. And once the plant starts growing, any superfluous shoots are thinned out to concentrate the plant's carbohydrate resources into only ripening the shoots with fruit on them. The shape of the trellis also supports ripening by concentrating the fruiting zones so that the grapes are physically in the same area, which also makes them easier to pick. Leaves are pulled to provide airflow to reduce the risk of mold growth or to expose the fruit clusters to some sun. But you don't want to pull off too many because you need the leaves to photosynthesize and transfer carbohydrates to ripen the fruit. And you also don't want to pull too many leaves because they provide shade to the clusters who can also get sunburned. So much less attention is paid to coffee plants to get them to ripen evenly, and therefore they don't. The plants could be fundamentally different and ripening could not converge in a similar way, but I believe that field practices could go a long way to making the ripening more uniform than it currently is. But the point is that this takes skilled labor in the field. Coffee has relied on abundant sheep labor to get the cherries off the trees and into the mill. The system was set up for minimal farm management. The plants are not native to the region. The farmers don't have long histories of knowing how to cultivate them in their best possible way, and the system wasn't set up to reward that kind of skill and attention to detail anyway. And now, that limited labor is disappearing. I want to share an experience that I witnessed and helped add context to the issue of quality. I was hired by a roaster to create a custom fermentation protocol for a product they were launching. I don't usually like to work this way because I think it can inadvertently skew the power dynamic between the buyer and the producer, because I prefer to be hired directly by the coffee producer, but there were two things that made this opportunity unique and worth considering. The first is that they had a long-standing relationship with the mill, and they had purchased several pieces of equipment for them, including several mechanical dryers, uh, a washer, and a floater separator. And so this is a piece of equipment that removes coffee that floats in water, and that's usually due to insect damage or being overripe and dried out. And floating coffee can significantly improve the quality. So they had that machine, and they had also purchased several eco-pulpers. Um, this is a piece of equipment that removes the outer fruit skin uh, called the pulp, and they have, they're also called eco because they use very little water. So this equipment investments let me know that the roaster was deeply invested in the mill success, and they had been for many years. Another important piece for me was that the roaster bought 100% of the coffee produced at the mill. And this is rare. Most roasters will buy several bags, but few are large enough to be able to buy everything that a mill this size produces. And this mill processed coffee from around 300 smallholder farmers who didn't have their own facility, so it's a lot of people. These farmers picked their coffee cherries on their own land and sold them to this mill. The farmers couldn't process their own coffee because they lacked the equipment, and the mill didn't own any farms, so it relied on the smallholders to bring them coffee cherries. This is a common arrangement in Central America. The two parties depend on each other. So they had all of the equipment they needed, but I was hired with the objective to create a coffee that would have a stronger flavor profile than the one they had been producing. They hired me to, quote, turn up the volume. 
If this is confusing terminology, listen to the previous episode 15 that goes into more detail on exactly how fermentation can do this. One issue that this mill had, and the main reason the volume of their coffee was turned down, was because several years before they had invested in efficiency and purchased the mechanical washers that I mentioned earlier, those eco-pulpers. Before the purchase of the equipment, the coffee was traditionally fermented in concrete tanks for 24 to 36 hours before being washed and sent to dry. This process was inconsistent, sometimes it yielded defects, and it was difficult to predict and control. One of the improvements that was made for efficiency and to improve quality was to eliminate this step. So once the coffee arrived at the mill, it was pulped, the skin was removed, and the mucilage was washed off with pressurized water in the eco-pulpers. Then it was spun in a centrifuge to remove excess water and it was sent straight to dryers. This initially improved coffee quality because it eliminated any coffee that could develop a defect from the fermentation step. It also made the process more efficient because instead of waiting two full days to process the coffee, they could get it through the washer and to the dryer in less than an hour. This was a huge improvement for the mill. And this was also good for farmers because it meant that they got paid shortly after they dropped off their cherry. Okay, so the way it works is the farmers would pick the coffee from sunrise until the early afternoon and then drop off their coffee at the mill. Then it would be weighed, but it would need to be floated to remove the lower quality coffee, and then it would spend 24 to 36 hours in the tank, and then it would need to be weighed again before going to the dryers. And the farmers would only get paid off of the second weight, the usable weight. So much of the weight of the coffee is unusable and waste, so the mill only wants to pay for what they can use, and what they do is they provide the service for the farmer who can't process the cherry anyway. So it's a bit of an exchange. They process the cherry for them, but they only buy what they can use. So the farmers would drop off their coffee and have to come back another day and be told what the result was, their final yield. They like the second method better, the newer method, the mechanically washed method, because all of the activity took place in front of their eyes. They dropped off their coffee, saw it being weighed, saw it being washed, and weighed again an hour later. They could track the whole thing and walk away with payment. In the first method, you would have to trust that their coffee didn't get mixed up with their neighbors. And when you have 300 neighbors, you can imagine this might happen sometimes. So the farmers were happy, the crew at the mill now had predictable shifts, the coffee was cleaner, the transaction was cleaner. The only problem was that even though the coffee initially increased in quality because it was cleaner and there were significantly fewer defects, it also lost character and flavor. And ultimately it dropped in quality because it was so unremarkable they couldn't justify charging specialty prices for it, so they couldn't buy it at specialty prices. This was a bit of a setback. So they hired me to put the flavor back in but safely. They could now see that the fermentation was adding a desirable quality to the coffee, but if they just went back to the previous method of fermentation the way that they had been doing it, they would risk bringing back all of the defects. So I could give them the best of both worlds, the complexity and character of a fermentation and the security that comes with mechanically washed coffees. Well, the security and the predictability and the control that comes with mechanically washed coffees. But when I got to the mill, I saw how thoroughly they had erased the previous fermentation processes. When I got there, I saw that the mill was unusable for what they wanted from me. It was like being asked to bake a cake with no oven. The essential equipment was gone. 
And this wasn't about adding an ingredient to the cake recipe to make it tastier. This required a massive overhaul because they had so thoroughly erased the previous method. So I basically needed to overhaul their previous overhaul. So I'm giving you so much background because it's a little bit of therapy for me. This project consumed over a year of my life. I flew to the mill three times in one year to monitor the progress and to build a facility for the projects. We eventually had to build a mini mill within the main mill to accomplish the project. It was a lot of coordination, a lot of effort and logistics. We had people in four different countries from five different companies. There were three contractors and it was hours of Skype calls and international flights. And I wish I could say that it ultimately had a happy ending, but unfortunately it did not. Normally when I'm hired, we do not need to make a mini mill. I've previously been able to adapt the method to whatever setup my client has. However, this was not a regular trial. We had to make at minimum a container of coffee this way. A container as in a shipping container, as in 20,000 kilos of coffees. And so the project was set up in three phases. Phase one was find a protocol they like. So I did these batches in about 100 kilos, pretty small sizes. Phase two was once that one was decided on, we would scale that to be 20 tons of coffee. And then phase three would be continue to scale. So we needed to make coffee at a significant volume. On my third visit, I went to monitor the progress of the harvest and make sure we were still on track to produce what we needed for phase two. We were getting close to the completion of harvest and they had hired a team to film the project to help explain what we were doing. This was to be a marketing piece to complement the release of the coffee. We had a 10-day shoot to capture the work and the mill and basically the whole scope of the project and to learn about the farms and the fermentation and also to film in several locations to highlight the surrounding natural beauty and general culture. It was an ambitious amount of work to fit into such a short time, especially considering how Latin America rarely stays on schedule for anything and add to that a few days where we had such torrential downpours that it made it difficult to film anything at all. This was a tight shoot. From Europe, we had a director, photographer, two producers, and the roaster's head of QC, and myself from the United States, and we had a local translator and a driver. So this was, at minimum, eight people caravanning around, filming me doing my job. I wish I could share the ridiculous things I had to film, but I digress. The important thing we needed to film was the fermentation process. We needed to film the coffee arriving, being weighed, pulped, put in the tanks, adding yeast, etc., but unfortunately, there was a lull in the harvest. It had been raining a lot. The strong rain had knocked the coffee off the trees, and what fell was not ripe. We had six people who all took 12-hour flights to be here, waiting to film, and we had no coffee. There were small trickles coming in daily. Some farmers brought in what they could to prevent it from rotting on the ground, but most didn't even bother. And we couldn't film this. It was not representative of what we were making, and it definitely was not photogenic. So we waited. We filmed everything else we could. We filmed interviews. We filmed B-rolls of sunsets, of all the flora, the fauna. We filmed everything we could about coffee without any actual coffee. And the desperation was growing. QC manager Patrick had been my initial contact and working on this the longest together. We were trying to figure out how we could make it work. Surely we could convince enough of the 300 farmers to bring us what little red cherry they had, and then we could combine it all together, and that would be enough to film with, right? Like, that's reasonable. Well, it was surprisingly difficult. 
We spent two frustrating days getting pinged back and forth between three parties. We asked the mill manager if we could offer to pay the farmer significantly more for the project. There was a budget, and the roaster could pay for the photogenic cherry. My first surprise was how unwelcome the suggestion was. We wanted to pay more for selective picking. Our logic was, more work requires more money, and we're desperate, so we're ready to pay above and beyond whatever that was. But they didn't like the idea. First, they said they couldn't because there wasn't a system to pay more, as in they didn't have the right paperwork. And we were like, wait, what, this is about paperwork? They didn't have the right type of receipt, so they didn't want to entertain the idea. Patrick and I eventually found a way around the paperwork. Then they said they didn't want us to pay some farmers more because the other farmers might get upset. If they upset the farmers, maybe they would take their cherry somewhere else. And if the farmers went elsewhere, the mill would suffer. This was the first hint I noticed that farmers getting paid more was directly threatening to the mill. They were supposed to be working together, and yet there was an element of competition. The mill needs to keep prices low so they can survive. If some farmers get paid more, it will upset the balance. So unless we could pay everyone more, they didn't want us to pay anyone any more money. This was uniquely frustrating for us because the purpose of the film and the subsequent marketing material was to show what went into making this coffee and why it needed to cost what it cost, what the behind the scenes effort was to make it taste good. And if we didn't make it, we couldn't convince consumers to pay more. And if they didn't pay more, they couldn't afford to buy it for more from the mill and then give the mill more money so the mill could give the farmers more money. What Patrick and I were saying was basically, help me help you. So eventually, we passed that other hurdle, but then the mill owner said that if we were going to pay more, we had to get approval from the exporter. This isn't usually true, but many years before, this mill fell on hard times. One of the owners was kidnapped and murdered, and the remaining family members were struggling to keep it afloat, and the exporter stepped up and loaned them the money to keep the doors open. This created a dynamic where the mill owner was the boss of what happened, but the exporter was also very much involved because they had loaned them the money. So this led to a frustrating two days where the mill owner said, it's not up to me, it's up to the exporter. And then we would go to the exporter and he would say, it's not up to me, it's up to the mill owner. And they ping-ponged us back and forth because we couldn't get both people in one place and one phone call at the same time to agree. And remember, they didn't even want to do this in the first place. So by the third day of feeling like we were banging our heads against the wall, we had our first victory. We had both of them on board. But they left it up to us to talk to the farmers and get some participation, which was great. Fine. We were super optimistic. Who could say no to more money? So Patrick and I loitered at the cherry drop-off point and tried to talk to a few farmers who were trickling in their one or two bags of rain-damaged coffee. So you can imagine us two smiling foreigners at the gate grinning ear to ear. It was like we were trying to get them to sign our petition and donate to our cause, but what we really wanted was to pay them double, triple, quadruple for bringing us red ripe cherries. At first, most of them ignored us, and then eventually we got a few people to listen, very hesitatingly, and they would say maybe, they would be polite, and then they would just leave. And a whole day was lost. We got no bites. It was baffling to me that we wanted to pay them four or five times the normal cherry price if they could just bring us some nice-looking cherry. And I finally understood why it was a hard sell for the mill to pay them more, but why was it such a hard sell for the farmers? My traditional model of the world was breaking down. This is how the world is supposed to work. You have a problem, you throw money at it. The problem is solved. If it's not, you throw even more money at it. 
what's going on? We desperately wanted to pay them more money in exchange for red cherries, and not only was the mill not supportive, but the farmers were not interested either. One obvious issue that I thought about is that they probably didn't trust us. This is a long-standing community, and we were outsiders. Even though the roaster had been investing for years, and I had already spent a good portion of my year going back and forth to this mill, we were still outsiders. Okay, fine. But we would also be paying them immediately, at drop-off, not after processing. There was nothing to trust. We would give them the money right away. This was another huge battle. The mill did not want us to pay for cherry because that was not their way. They didn't technically buy cherry. They paid for parchment. It needed to be processed and weighed, and then the farmer would be paid. But we just needed red cherries. And the mill didn't want us to pay parchment prices for cherry. It was just crazy to them to pay parchment prices for cherry. They didn't understand that for us, the value was visual. We would have paid anything for cherry at that point. So after four days of phone calls and negotiations with conversations in English and Spanish and French and German, we were nowhere. Well, we were on a coffee mill with 300 farmers, a significant budget burning a hole in our pocket, and the system was not flexible enough to let us pay more for coffee cherries. And then it got even more complicated. The next thing I learned would not have come up unless we had been in this exact situation. So the price of coffee had been so low for so long that the mill had been subsidizing their farmers. The mill can't make any money if they don't have farmers who bring their cherry, so they need the farmers. But with the low prices, they can't pay them very much. And then the farmers don't have the money to pay pickers or buy fertilizers or cultivate the land, and many end up abandoning their crops and abandoning their farms altogether. And if farmers abandon their farms, the mill has nothing to process. So they help them buy fertilizer. They give them advances to pay the pickers. The farmers keep farming the land, and the mill keeps the supply of coffee cherries coming. But this means that the farmers are now in debt to the mill. They are not making money as much as they are paying back the loans and advances. So then, when the mill itself was in trouble, the same system was transferred to the exporter. The exporter bailed out the mill, who was already bailing out the farmers. So when we offered the farmers more money to bring us cherry, we thought we were offering them a chance to make money. But for them, it was really a chance to pay down their debt faster. So for example, Say someone wants to give you $5,000, which sounds great, except that you have a 20-year mortgage. Now that money is not your money, it's the bank's money, and what you're really getting is a chance to pay off that 20-year loan in 19.5 years. It's suddenly a lot less attractive of an offer. It's both a lot of money at once and meaningless compared to the amount that is owed. In that case, the extra hassle is not worth it today to shave off a few payments several years from now. Because the farmers were in debt to the mill, and the mill was in debt to the exporter, any money we tried to give the farmers was redirected. The money they were paid went right back to the exporter. Even if we paid them five times the normal amount, it would just go towards paying their debt. And that mountain was so huge that it wouldn't even make a dent, so it wasn't worth the extra effort. Usually you feel like the coffee value chain is so long, it's hard to make any effort, any progress. And yet here we were, on behalf of the roaster, standing in a coffee mill, speaking face-to-face -to, -face to the farmer, and still, we could not make any progress. I was watching the coffee being dropped off on the backs of donkeys or in pickup trucks, listening to the clicks of the generators, the roar of the machines, the whole beast just steadily moving forward. And it dawned on me, we can't fix this by throwing money at it. 
Higher coffee prices can't fix this because the system makes it so that the money gets caught in loops too far up the chain to make a difference at this ground level. This was where my reductionist thinking really broke down. Paying more is only part of the solution. Because even if a little manages to trickle down, it still doesn't matter, and it doesn't work when the debt is so big. This also shows the inflexibility of a system and creates a bottleneck on quality. The coffee quality quickly hits a ceiling if the system itself prevents farmer from selective picking and being able to bring ripe fruit. The system incentivizes them to bring lower quality fruit because it's easier, it's faster, and there's more volume. And all the downstream effort of fermentation, roasting, brewing, and marketing is severely handicapped at the source. In the end, we didn't get their coffee. This was not our land. We couldn't go in and pick it ourselves, as desperate as we were to get it. In the next episode, I'll tell you another instance where we didn't have the labor and we did have to pick the coffee ourselves. You know, sitting down to collect these interactions is possible through the support of Patreon. I'm grateful for the 26 individuals who currently support this podcast, and it's through their generosity that I can make it available to you all. As a thank you, I create additional resources on the Patreon account. One of the perks of being a patron is picking episode topics. However, today's episode was not picked by the patrons. It's something that's been brewing in me for a while and something that I've wanted to share with you. So to support this free, adless podcast, please visit patreon.com slash coffee. If you enjoy these episodes and you'd like to hear a little more from me, like getting coffee recommendations and joining the growing science nerd community, please subscribe to my newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. Thanks for joining me. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.